are you today, Alex? It's Chris Ryan calling. Yes, yes, it is Chris Ryan. I recognized your dulcet tones. Or, you or, know what time it is, right? I, yeah, it's it's that time. It's that time to it's tell. It's time to tell the, the damn, damn story. Yeah. It, you know, it's it's funny because uh, today not only do we have some stories to tell, but and and but we also have a topic involving who should tell the damn stories. Who, so who should tell the damn that's stories? Right. So as the, and, as, uh, as the sun is I, shining, the birds are shivering. Yes. I will lead in with something that it actually ties in to today's main topic. Oh, so? Right. Well, we usually start with. What are you up to, right? Mm -hmm. So what I'm up to is um, I re-edited and kind of punched up uh, and modernized it, uh, a short story I wrote a couple of years ago. In those few short years, technology changed enough where I had to make some changes, Ooh. which is fascinating. You know, drones came in. Here's a hint of the story. Um, but it's <laughs> called Goldbraith. And uh, that is Gaelic or Irish for uh, Till Doomsday. And it's a uh, Mallory and Gunner short story set uh, at the New York City St. Patrick's Day Parade, which just happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. So in honor of St. Patrick's Day, uh, it's on my Christopher Ryan, uh, Christopher Ryan author page on Facebook. It's on the Tell the Damn Story Facebook page. Uh, a couple of the pulp pages, a few other places um, that uh, support or feature writers for free. It's also on my blog, Chris Ryan Writes at WordPress, and uh, my Twitter, Chris Ryan Writes. There you go. So, um, in it, one of the characters espouses my uh, attitude or feelings towards St. Patrick's Day. Oh, so. Uh, well, uh, you know, I grew up in the Bronx, and as, you know, as an errant uh, uh, Irish Bronx boy, well, we'd go down to the parade when we were not of age to be drinking, you know, and I looked around in my, you know, young dreamer's head at an entire just swarm of drunks at the St. Patrick's Day, and people, you know, guzzling and getting incoherent or puking, and it really turned me off. This was not what my father had taught me about being Irish, mm. you know, and what I knew about being Irish was the, the, the strong mythology and the great stories and, and the great spirit of the people, you know, and, and uh, As opposed to the, people taking in the spirit. Instead of taking in the spirit, yeah. they held it in and, and, and used the spirit during the Troubles, which were the, was the long war against uh, and, uh, oppression and enslavement uh, by the English. And uh, I just felt there was so much more. Much like the American or the African-American slave, uh, Irish culture was ripped apart and... They weren't allowed, even, you know, where Irish step comes to uh, uh, form because they weren't allowed to dance because the English were afraid that if they danced, they would be preparing to attack them. So they wouldn't want them to have strong arms. So that's all that dancing with just the legs is part of the oppression. It's a very physical, visual, visual form of that oppression. Mm. So in this story, 
uh, Mallory takes uh, takes the position that I have always taken about you know this uh, this drinking and, and, and stuff is not the, the richness of the Irish culture. The music played, the dancing played, the pride, sure, okay, all those are part of the culture. But it, that other part always turned him off. Uh, so it's reflected in, in a short passage just before the chaos starts. And, of course, Gunnar, who is Italian, is much more Irish in this piece than Mallory, <laughs> the Irishman, uh, to great, I think, fun comic uh, uh, results. And uh, and then the two have to deal with one of the more bizarre crimes that they've ever faced. And it's all free, and that's what I've been up to. And it, it ties in, because, I, you know, can you write about um, your ethnicity, your uh, rich culture? Yes, you can. And we'll talk more about that question in a couple of minutes. What have you been up to creatively? Well, what have oh, I been up to? Simmons. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, ac actually yesterday I was I was experiencing a bit of the Irish as well, you know. Uh oh. <laughs> I, <laughs> what are we talking about now? Yeah. But, well, it was it was not the imbibing, um, but um, what I've been up to involves. Blarney? Were you uh, up to Blarney then? No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't blarneying either. I'm not kissing anything hanging from a castle ter uh, parapet, but. Um, <laughs> I went, I, I'm working on one of my, 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 my passion projects, which is the Kids Comic-Con, which is something I created over 13 years ago. And um, the, as a matter of fact, that, that, and it's an annual event, and that's coming up April 20th of this year. I know. I'm making my comeback. Yes, on you April are. On April 20th, I'm coming back to a KCC. Yeah, please. Yeah, two K, two, one K, two Cs. Yes, right. Not KKK. That's yeah. a whole different event. Yeah, right. But anyway, so I was working on, and so I went downtown to meet with a gentleman who works with young people uh, doing wall murals in various communities and so forth, because they're going to be doing a demonstration with the kids at our event. And we met down in the West 20s, which is right near 34th Street and, and uh, 7th Avenue, Madison Square Garden, big popular tourist area. It's also the garden where everybody comes in to see the, the Rangers games and, and all that sort of stuff. And I come up out of the subway... I know Walzer is traveling with thousands of people already in the subway, but I come up out of the subway into the main area, and it's swarming with people in green, you know, a little bit of green or a lot of green, and a, a, a lot of also what you were describing, uh, various, um, shall we say, inventive ways of filling up water bottles and cups and things with something I think was less than uh, non-alcoholic. And I, I had to move through this wave of people to get to my meeting. And, and I, was, I was commenting in my head two things. Uh, one of them was, you know, I'm used to this. I've lived in New York all my life. And so St. Paddy's Day, I'm used to all this. By the same token, I was going, I was looking at other people who were not necessarily involved in this, but they were passers-by or moving through the crowds as well. And I was noticing their reactions to what they were seeing. And there was usually either amusement on their face or there was something else. That said, oh, this is weird, but okay, you know. No one felt, as w at least as far as I could tell, no one seemed to have an expression of threat on their face or, or that sort of thing. And I, I it just went through my head, as an African-American, it just went through my head, what would be 
the reaction of these same individuals who were observing this phenomena if we flipped it and this was gazillions of people of the darker hue wearing maybe some sort of traditional or suggestive African, African garb or um, black, you know, a, a country of, of African-Americans or Africans and so forth. What would their reaction be if we were out there in those numbers also passing around the beer and whatever else people were drinking? And, and just, just that, that flip there, what would be the perception? How would it be different? Because in my head, I, I, I already surmised how some of that would go because I've seen it. So I was just moving through that. And it's just one of those things that happens in your head. Um, maybe it happens in, in, in the, the minds of people who aren't writers and, and actors and so forth. But certainly in my head, you start to see this scenario. <clears throat> pardon me. And you start to think about the story behind it. And part of that caused me to think about this topic that you and I are going to talk about today. But we'll get back to that in a moment. So what well, I did was... let's, let's explore that just for a minute, right? Okay, um, just for a minute, yeah. If, let's go journalistically first and then fiction, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you and I walked through that crowd together yesterday mm -hmm. and then wrote about it on, uh, even if it was on Twitter or on a blog piece that we shared on different social media, would there be the same reaction? From Would each we, of I us? I mean, not that we get a ton of response, but if, you know, uh, uh, a white Irish guy wrote about the, you know, the, the swarms, like, like I do in the Mallory and Gunnar story, you know, with some disapproval, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and you wrote, as an African-American Bronx guy, uh, wrote with some disapproval would there be a, a different reaction oh i think for sure i, I think, think for sure. i think for sure as well yeah who would get more play or who would get um an easier time of it <laughs> well who would the people think would have a right to react negatively at all you know because yeah. Because your reaction might be seen as, oh, but, you know, you should understand you're Irish and, you know, this is, this is tradition and yada, yada, yada. And my reaction, seen through the, the eyes of others, might be, well, you're just, you know, you're, you're reacting from a, a racial or racist point of view, blah, sure. blah, 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 blah. You know, so now, it's, let's it's funny. Now, let's change the parade, same yep. scenario. Uh, you and I are walking through crowds maybe not imbibing as much, maybe is imbibing as much, of the Jamaican Day Parade. Mm-hmm. And we wrote, what would the reaction be? Well, if we take out the, the alcoholic aspect, I think then it's a different experience because the, the factor that makes what we were just talking about something that distressed you and always I have to look at like, okay, wow, you know, yeah. is the alcohol. It's the yeah. I, I guess we'd have to keep the alcohol yeah. in because that's what we were um, disapproving of. Yeah. So, but I don't want to assume. I've never been in the crowd situation for the uh, uh, Jamaican? Uh, Jamaican Day Parade. But let's, for the sake of this argument, 
yes, let's say they're celebrating with alcohol, and there was uh, disapproval, now there's there's a different potential for blowback yep. Yep. to you and to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then one more example, the Puerto Rican Day Parade. Yeah. Now we're both in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, you know, uh, uh, what am I going to do? Explain my mother's name was Rodriguez? That's not going to fly, right? Right? That's the I have a white friend or I have a black friend. Yeah, or, I, mean, that's I have all fly, your albums, right? you know. And it brings us to what we're going to talk about today. But before we get there, I'm sorry to build up and then have them hold. Well, because you all, I also didn't get to finish what I was working on, but okay, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. Finish, finish <laughs> what you started, I'm so sorry. No, I was saying that I met with this gentleman from um, uh, this organization called Thrive Collective, uh, which is I, we'll get into it another time. But as I said, they work with murial, murals, rather, and murals, I'm sure is a lovely lady, but they work with murals. But she never goes to work. Right. She work, they work with murals and children and young people in schools and after-school programs and all that. And they're going to be up at KCC doing this um, mural project with superheroes and everything, and the kids uh, on the 20th of April. So it was fun doing that, and then I later went uptown to uh, attend the 50th anniversary celebration of the Children's Arts Carnival. And uh, there's a long story behind that, which I, I can't go into now, but sometime I will, folks. This is well worth listening to. But this was something that was created 50 years ago by a woman named Betty Blayton Taylor. And she created this, in Harlem, this wonderful brownstone outlet gathering place for the community's children to come to and learn about the arts and learn about arts and crafts and learn about culture and history, not just of African Americans, but of people. And it's been, on and off, it's been going for 50 years. And I walked through the door, and the beauty of it was not only seeing a lot of the elders who had known Betty, because I came in after she had stepped down from running the company, uh, the organization, but here were all these elders who knew her, many artists or business people or, or established in, in various industries, but there were also a number of the young people that I had worked with or I had known at this event and so you're looking at people who you met when they were 13 and 14 or 15, and now they're 29, 30, you know, and you, you know where they've gone in their lives, and they're coming back to talk about the impact that the carnival had on them and what they're doing and how they're giving back. So that was really exciting, and some of these very people are going to be involved in the Kids Comic Con coming up uh, in April. So I really felt like I went in a wonderful full circle of, of art, creativity, empowerment, empowerment, and the empowering of kids and young people, and, and hopefully giving you know folks of all ages and colors, uh, which is what we've done, you and I both, uh, over the years, um, an opportunity to explore their own creativity and to discover the world. And so y that was yesterday. With everything else we were talking about, that was my yesterday. That's wild. Holy yeah. cow. Yeah. Well, that's why they call him the man on the move, ladies and gentlemen. Because <laughs> moving targets are harder to hit. Yeah, well, I, you know what uh, What kept distracting me? That you were going to all these activities. Kind of, I just kept picturing you having to swim upstream through the parade goers. <laughs> <Yeah, through, laughs> through, through, through the moss-covered waters. Yeah, the green moss-covered waters. Oh, you saw a lot of green yesterday, yeah. buddy. You, you know, and again, going back to where you were taking the topic before, you know, which is our main topic for the day. Um, 
growing up in New York City, to me, has been both a challenge and a blessing. And it's one that I, I embrace fully because just like you were saying, you know, the Irish, and then we talked about African-American and Jamaican and Puerto Rican, you know, and Dominican and Italian and Chinese and Japanese, that to me was the thrill of this city and still is, is this cornucopia of cultures. And I, I saw that as, as like, it's like um, living in the United Nations, except it's on the move. It was, there was always something to see, always something to learn, always something fascinating in front of me. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, when I was younger, I wanted to make sure that if I had children, which I did, but if I had children, I wanted them to grow up here because I wanted them to be exposed to the world. And, and you can get a microcosm of the world right here in this city. So I relish a lot of the uh, experiences, encounters, and things that I've had. And I think it also is a part, not the major part, but it's a part of why I have done what we're going to talk about today in, in terms of writing about things that are not necessarily a part of my heritage or my upbringing. And I think once you start living in a multicultural world, it's hard to go back. Mm. You know, because once you realize how much more there is when everyone's putting in, you know, even if it's just living in the neighborhood and, you know, uh, I have new neighbors, I believe they're Filipino. Uh, and you see the commonality, you know, who's getting the paper in the morning, who's mm -hmm. walking the dog, how you doing, who's, you know, every single thing, you know, and uh, uh, a guy across the street, you know, we always make fun. His The snow on his lawn lasts three times longer than the snow on mine because <laughs> the way the sun falls, you know, and uh, he's Indian, you know, and it, to, to get that commonality, you know, or to have my sons uh, come, have their friends come over, and there's you know six different nationalities or ethnicities yeah. coming through the door. That's the goal, you know. And we're watching, you know, some old white guys in Congress having to deal with multiculturalism now, you know, in the young new Congress people. And it's it's so vital, whether you agree with the politics or not, to have that interchange because. I mean, that's that's the promise of America. You know, read the bottom of the Statue of Liberty. You know, read the Declaration. <laughs> we were created to be a country uh, that's self-made and that is made by mixing in different people. And I think that's the key to our survival. Well, I think the qualifier, you know, and, and it's been said by people of both both sides or all sides of the line, is the interpretation of those words may not have been as broad in the minds of some of the, the founding fathers, let alone those who have carried the responsibility of maintaining that over the years. And I think it's what's happening, you know, not only now now, but in the past 40 years, is we're holding those words to their promise. Is more people demanding that those words be literally lived, and and, and I think that's necessary. I think that's development. I agree with you, and I think that's two of the most beautiful things about our government. I know it's rare to hear that kind of phrase. Is one that 
the founding father, fathers phrased things more for promise than for, you know, cementing uh, and preventing growth. Mm. And then, too, through the years, in what has often been painful growth, uh, we have adjusted, we have improved, you know, Emancipation Proclamation, Civil Rights Act, uh, Equal Rights for Women, you know, gay marriage. Little, little by little, we have, you know, grown more to fulfill our promise. And I think um, right now we're going through a period of growth and we're in the retraction phase you know, part. Like when you go to work out after not working out for a while and your body is like, nah, nah, bro, nah, yeah. listen. There's that show you want to watch, you know, it's just pretty, right? And, and, and there's that resistance. What we're seeing now is that resistance, that blowback, and to kind of take us to that middle section before our main uh, comment or our main uh, discussion today, one of the things I came upon this week, you know, one of the things that caught my attention was a nonfiction book by David E. McCraw. David E. McCraw has been the legal counsel for the New York Times for the last 15 years, mm. and he fulfilled that role for the Daily News for 15 years before that. This book uh, concerns his work for the Times as the legal counsel, uh, and it's called Truth in Our Times, and it really captures this growing pain, this this battle we have for how we're going to see ourselves, how we're going to form ourselves, and how we're going to protect our rights. Um, our, our current president uh, uh, shows up a lot in this book because he has singled out the New York Times for vehement attacks and for accusations time and again. From No pun back, intended. Yeah, dating way back to when he was... Donald Trump real estate guy and then when he was TV guy and now when he's president guy um, and it's a vehicle to look at what freedom of the press really means and what the checks and balances, the value of the checks and balances it's a great book explained, it's not explained in legalese which kills a lot of books it's very uh, understandable and conversational but it's a great book to help find a little bit of hope in, in a time where people are kind of digging in to their position and not listening, you know. So, so let's, um, let's, let's talk about that in terms of uh, that, but let's talk about the topic that we, you know, we're... we're I think we're it ties talking. in. Yeah, no, I'm, but I'm saying, so let's focus in even a little bit more on that. Uh, one of the things that, you know, in terms of determining where do I fit in and how... How do I find and set my place in this world, in this universe, black or white or whatever? Um, a number of episodes back, and I, you know, I didn't do my homework and see which one it was. We did a show, a Tell the Damn Story show, about uh, whether you know whites should write black characters because you had experienced a, a podcast where you heard, um, I don't know if it was a co-host or host who was African-American, uh, making very strong... Uh, comment about that, and what was the comment was to what effect exactly? If you're not, if you haven't lived it, you can't write it. That was basically what the argument was. Okay, and which, so yeah, go ahead. No, it, 
my initial, and they were talking about the black experience, mm -hmm. and they were talking about, you know, there was a, there was shows uh, and movies that were uh, coming out, um, including Luke Cage, including Iron Fist, including Get Out, um, a Blackish, a bunch of other stuff, and they were saying, uh, you know, ones that have uh, a, a black writing staff that have this that you know those are more authentic you can't authentically write about another ethnicity and I came to and they said it was insulting and racist to try and do so this when I was finishing up uh, trial by fire which is uh, my fifth or sixth blackjack story and I was like um <laughs> Alex, do we have to talk about this? Yeah. <laughs> and, and my reaction was, um, having not heard the episode that you did, but hearing what you relayed to me, my reaction was, in order, one, it's my character, and I get to choose who writes it, and I've already chosen you, so take that nonsense out, out of your head. And then I, we went into the discussion and eventually you know, recorded it on the show, the discussion about you, you, you mentioned blowback. Um, I've I've written stuff that I've never lived either. Uh, I've never been a seventeen-year-old white girl. Uh, I've never been a seventeen-year-old white boy. I've never been a woman. I've never been an alien. I've never been a cartoon Great Dane. I've never been a white guy swimming swinging rather through the jungle, and I've written all those things. I was never a Powhatan Indian. I've written that. I do agree that a person who has not lived that particular experience is missing a lot of life information. And that's true. And then as a writer or as an actor, because both of those roles require that you do homework, that you do as much homework as you possibly can to, to make it as authentic as you possibly can. But no, you will never be that. You'll just get as close to it as you can. You'll, you'll run it by people who are. You'll do whatever it takes to give 110% of the work to the craft and to, in, in, you know, at least knowing how you work and knowing how I work, to do everything we can not to be offensive or to, to play the stereotypes and that sort of thing. But to say that it's racist or offensive... If the person is not a racist or an offensive individual, then I got a, I got a, a major problem with that very broad statement because then to me it means that I shouldn't have written any of the things that I did and all of the black writers and actors out there who have played roles that had no definitive black element to it should not have touched those either. So, you know, whites or, or others can push back the exact same way. So I think it's it's a double-edged sword, and you got to be careful how you carry it. I agree, and it, uh, your your comments there gave me like three or four places I want to go, but I want to start with blackjack, um, because anyone who reads uh, your blackjack stories and my blackjack stories, uh, it's easy to see that there's a difference, you know. Um, I go with the, the blackjack that I learned from reading your stories. And 
I add into that the, the, my efforts to create the same feeling I got as uh, a, a young kid or a kid to teenager reading Captain America Falcon, uh, reading Doc Savage, um, uh, reading so many different heroes that I felt meant America to me. The America that my father, uh, a conservative Republican, old school conservative Republican, uh, taught me, you know, the, the America of promise, the America of spirit and, and determination and uh, the absolute insistence on doing what right, though hell may bar the way. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the core of uh, Blackjack when I write him. Anyone who pays close attention will see that there are all, I don't know if I have many, if any, flashbacks into Blackjack's earlier life. I've, I've, in my eyes or in my heart, that's completely your territory. You've grown up, you've created, you've lived with this character, um, probably subliminally your whole life, <laughs> but... Right, mm. but at least 30, 35 years, it, it, as the germ of the idea starts to evolve. For me, every story I write is an homage, an homage to the American spirit, as in, encapsulated in this particular character. And I believe he's one of the great American heroes, and I think he should Thank be. Thank you. Uh, well, kudos to you. Um, but uh, you know, and my research is into how he has reacted to situations in the past and then to build on that. And then the situations we put him in, I researched no matter where they are. You know, New York City in the 30s, not my first-hand experience. Mm -hmm. So I had to research uh, gangsters and cops and what existed and what didn't. When we did um, Ransom for a Dead King, which is uh, largely about uh, King Masa Musa, the uh, richest king ever, the African African king. Uh, I, I pitched that to you, what, 20 years ago, and did the research for it, and then it didn't it didn't happen at that time. And then, as it as it came up over the years, I added to the research. And when we finally got the green light, and kind of okay, now we know how we're going to do it. I redid all that research and based on based or put the background of the story together so that the blackjack I've know I know so well, not nearly as well as you, could move through that story with authenticity. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think anyone who is an African American scholar will look and see that my the my story is about blackjack are more heroic uh, than um, than ethnically themed. He's still, I think he's still true to the Blackjack character, but I don't feel like I have that depth, you know? Mm. Um, and that's just respect. I think it should be respect of the character. Um, things that, that I think I find fault with that we might all find fault with is, for example, in the 70s when they created Luke Cage and had him saying stuff Sweet like Christmas. Sweet Christmas. Oh, right? Sweet yeah. Christmas was a problem for everybody. 
Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, again, it, it was someone who didn't have that experience. You know, if they had a black writer on that, mm-hmm. Sweet Christmas never would have been. Um, I thought it was a, a, a an interesting nod um, and correction of it on the first season of the show. When the only time he used that, you know, it was in the afterglow of intimacy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was said with a wink and a smile, you yeah. know. The same way um, as the, the yellow shirt popped up. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, and his, the, 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 bracelets on his arm and the headband and the chain around his waist were problematic you know and i'm glad that all that stuff got lost well you know i i think you know going back to that and by the way just in case anybody out there is wondering no i didn't live through the 1930s either you know i'm 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 a little older than chris but not by that much um, well, we'll have to check the bathroom. Yeah, well, I, okay. no, I burn those things. Anyway, the, <laughs> the, re, the you know the reality for me is uh, starting out to do blackjack all those years ago. You know, um, the very first story I did took place in New York City, and I, I I tell the punchline before the story because the reality was okay. I created a globe-trotting hero. And, and I had this story in mind, it involved Nazis and things like that, and I wrote the story, and I was trying to get it into DC Comics at the time, and Dick Giordano was the uh, VP uh, and editor and, uh, at that time. And I took it in, and he read it, you know, not in the same sitting, I handed it in, and then like a few days later, a week later, I got called in, and he said, I, I gotta ask you one question right off the top. He says, why did you create this black globe-trotting hero, and I'm, the first thing I'm thinking in my head is Dick had never, I knew him a little bit, he had never discussed race with me, so I had no idea where he was going to go with this, but the first thing he says, well, why did you create this black globe-trotting hero, and I'm thinking, okay, here, here we go, I'm going to have to now battle for him to remain black, he says, and, and his first story, he never leaves the city. <laughs> and it was like I stumbled over my response because as I said I was getting ready you know 30 years ago to have to defend his color right and Diggs got me on the obvious which is he globe trots but he never leaves me he doesn't he even leave like, Manhattan you know? that hero. <laughs> yeah. so it was like humana 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 and well and, that's just for a second all hail Dick Giordano absolutely in this moment and in his whole career yeah yeah but so you know in that moment Dick in doing what he do he did and saying what he said said to me let's talk about this story and get it right it wasn't like oh you're a black guy and this is a black hero so I guess maybe you could do this or any of those other things it was about okay so he's black but why didn't he and that said to me we're going to talk about the story and whether or not it works and he, he gave me the problems with it, and then I went off and wrote Second Bite of the Cobra, which is where I take him to the Middle East. Now, I had been to Africa one time in my life, and it was, it was to Kenya. And so I had some sense of the space and the feel of that continent. I mean, a tiny, tiny sense of it. But I didn't know the Middle East that well. And I, right, right, so right. I spent a lot of time in the library. I spent a lot of time talking to some people that I knew who were from that area or who had traveled that area. Uh, and even while writing the three-issue uh, uh, arc, I kept going back to do more research about the people who, I mean, the, the, the quote-unquote villain 
you know, I didn't want to just make him, oh, he's he's the Arab villain and, 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 and Blackjack's going to go up against him. What was the history of the people at that time? Okay, the Brits were in there, just like you were talking about earlier about them in Ireland. The Brits were in there. What was the feeling? What was going on? What were the, the what was the temperature of it? And I, I went through all of that because I wanted to make sure I represented the culture to the best of my ability, a culture that I had not lived and lived yeah. within or moved within. And well, I don't did. know. I don't, I'm, sorry, I'm just going to just say, no, I don't no, know man. how people of that culture, you know, in terms of the broad strokes, responded to the story. I do know that the few that I've met over the years who read it enjoyed the story. So I can only hope and feel that I didn't offend anybody and that I tried to tell a good story and and in 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 the diversity of the characters where there were some who were yeah the bad guys that we were dealing with but so were some of the Englishmen we dealt with and some of the other characters as well as some of them were the good guys so i think again how you approach these stories where you didn't live it yeah that mindset really does affect how well you handle the story right and um one of the tricks you know, not tricks but one of the methods is to is to humanize, right? First, you have to do research, you know? Um, and I, you cannot pander. I have a kid in one of my classes that I have to sit with. We're watching, uh, we're reading um, Hamlet. Mm. And this 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 will get back uh, in a minute to our topic here. But um, so the reward is they get through a couple of acts. We show the equivalent acts from uh, Mel Gibson's version of Hamlet, which is more visceral, and and it's a little easier for them to, to, to Connect digest, to? right? So, mm -hmm. um, I have one guy. Uh, uh, the class happens to be made up of uh, Latino, Latinas, African Americans, Caribbean Americans, uh, Filipinas, uh, and. Two white dudes. Um, <laughs> Why does that sound it, like a new show? <laughs> it, it's just two white dudes. Yeah. Uh, it's the way, and that's not counting me, so um, it's just the way it is, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this one white dude, this one kid, uh, you know the, the, the phrase awkward teenager? Mm -hmm. Well, here we go. So when the ancestral things, or the awkward things, or the agenda or backbiting uh, elements of Hamlet are shown in the movie. Uh, he spent, and we, we watched 20 minutes one day, 20 minutes the other day, and he, he spent a lot of time going, huh, white people. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the class of color would turn around at him and say, you know, just give him a look like, stop I have to explain to him that pandering not helping the situation at all yeah you know um, but you don't want to do that but you do want to humanize you know um, in trial by fire when the Nazis confront uh, these two Nazis confront uh, blackjack I guess it's Aaron at that moment in my mind mm -hmm. Um when he goes in just for a simple beer and realizes it's a Nazi bar, uh, one of them is clearly speaking loud enough so that his superiors can hear. He was trying so hard to make an impression, 
and that is still racist and it's still dehumanizing but we can recognize that that panderer you know that mm -hmm. and, and I, I think that's one of the elements that you have to do but it has to be within the wheelhouse of the people that you're writing mm -hmm. by the now, way for those of you listening the scene takes place in germany Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's at a station, a train station in Germany, uh, where Aaron's just had a major adventure yeah. and is about to go into another one. Yeah, he's trying. All he wants to do is it's get, get out, out of, of town. <laughs> it's one of those deals. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Um, but I will. And this next part is going to be told, spoke, discussed. Hopefully, uh, at least uh, I know you will. And at least I, I want to make sure that everyone understands. I'm saying it with total respect and reverence. Because I'm a huge fan of this author. So the situation is me, not him. And I want to see what you have to say. Joe R. Lansdale mm -hmm. is an amazing author uh, with an incredible career. And one of the many, many things that has hit big for him is his Hap and Leonard series. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hap is a white guy in the South. And Leonard is a black uh, military veteran uh, who's seen action, seen war, uh, and he is gay. And all of that is accepted by Hap and their friends. And it's a great adventure. They get themselves in so much trouble from their own beliefs and their own shortcomings and all that sort of stuff and I love every every aspect of it except for one word and when you hear this you're gonna we're gonna be able to talk about how you and I I approached you with the same thing right <clears throat> they use the word the n-word mm -hmm. and in my own personal past there's been such pain related to that word when my entire neighborhood went to war and when there was almost a mass murder over that word, then I am, you know, it's, it makes me flinch, right? Mm -hmm. So I am always trying to avoid it. And when Joe has Hap or Leonard use that word, especially when Hap uses that word, uh, it, and I understand they're down in Texas, it's uh, culturally how... You know, it's culturally believable that down there that's still used, you know, or at least, you know, these books go back 30 years, you know. Um, but it never fails to knock me out of the story. I, I hear you. Um... Walt, Walter Mosley uses it. He's an African-American writer yeah. writing about African-Americans. The easy, the easy Rollins series. Easy Rollins series. Yep. It it doesn't, it doesn't throw me as much there, because it's from the forties and thirties, forties, something like that. Forties. It's yeah. Um, easy comes and, out of the military and and is trying to put his life together. And it's, it's used so rarely. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, it, it sounds more organic when a mouse is saying it 
angry at somebody. Mm-hmm. It's a put down. It always freaks me out when Hap says it to Leonard. You know. Yeah. And you know that I've come to you about not using that word in blackjack. Right. So let's talk about that word for a minute. Well, let me let me just start out by saying. The funny thing about it is I don't actually ever use the word in blackjack. I let characters start to use it, and it gets cut off. And right. it's very rarely that I even do that, because I don't like the word. Yeah. I was, understand- it? was it Red? Who was it that was... Red nearly uses it in mm-hmm. one of the short stories. Yeah. And there's a couple of other times where it, it's, it's a character starting to say it, and it gets cut off. Yeah. And it's, the, the, the thing of it is... In reality, as I as I see Aaron, he hates the word, and he's got more reason to than either one of us. Um, he's heard it much of his life. He's seen it used not only to his family, but you know, it's just in terms of him, his sister, his mother, but also even to his father. And there are situations where it was used by people who his father had to go out and then trust that they would have his back in battle. So it's a hateful word to him. There are places in his life, like if it happens from a New York City cop in the 30s, and Aaron could bust a man in a a heartbeat, but he also knows the fallout that's going to come down. Right. You know, and literally it will be, all hell will erupt. So there are ways he deals with it in the city, when he's here in, in the American frontier of New York. Uh, there are ways he deals with it when he's in the, in the Southwest visiting his sister. And there's a story there where she gets kidnapped. I won't go into a whole big thing. And he knows the Klan has been involved earlier in the day in their lives, so he's ready to go to war. Now all bets are off. I will go in, guns blazing. I will hurt anybody and everybody I can because you touched my sister or you stole, you kidnapped my sister. And the only reason that that doesn't happen is, and I'm not going to say what, because, again, I want people to read the story. But the bottom line is, I, I when he's in, in another country, oh, then forget it. You don't get to use the word in front of him at all. You don't get it finished. And so part of me is recognizing the era and the fact that that word and other words like it were used helter-skelter. It was norm, boy, this, you know, mm-hmm. Negro, um, colored... Uh, uh, boot black sh- and all those jigaboo all those those other phrases something about the inward cuts I mean it really cuts it's like it's like shark teeth it really just rips flesh for me and so I try very hard to say I know it existed I know people used it I'll find a way to set it up but I don't really want to spell the whole word out I don't really want to use it and and I understand your reaction too and I and I because I know the story also that you're you're hinting at and it's, yeah, I mean, how we react to the work that we have to do, you know, I don't know about Joe, I, I mean, I don't know him as a person, so I don't know what his mindset is, but I do know well, blacks again, and whites who use the word in their stories. It, I mean, I understand how he's using it, you know, and I understand, you know, what the culture of the times or whatever, but it, I I still can't get there. I was more clear on uh, when Red was using it, my feeling was, or almost using it, was that I didn't think Aaron would continue working with him 
if he said that. And you had a different take on that. Yeah, um, because again... Uh, and, uh, worth, worth talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, um, when you live in that era, and this is, this is my belief based on things I've experienced in my life in this era in which we exist, um, and, and things I've heard and read and seen, the, there are circumstances where you either have to tolerate X or you see beyond, let me use the abbreviation, the BS, you see beyond the, the, that, that element of an individual because you know there's more. You're, you're doing what you're doing or you're saying what you're saying because you're used to being able to do that. But I know that you're better than that. And so I'm going to put up with it one time or I'm going to put up with it for a little while and give you a chance to grow or change. I'm going to give you a chance to save your teeth. You know, whatever your attitude is for that moment, whatever you determine is that moment, I'm going to, I'm going to school you on why you should not do or say what you just did ever again. And then after that, it's all, all bets are off. And so to me, Aaron has spent enough time with Red. You know, the, he, they meet in Second Bite of the Cobra. The adventure you're talking about happens at least a, a six months to a year later. And he has been in enough situations with this man to, to have a better sense of who this dude is and to know that he's gone through a lot of stuff. And so Aaron is going to give him just a hint of a get-out-of-jail-free card. So when he goes to use the word, Aaron stops him right there because, A, I don't have to listen to it. B, that's not what I'm here to hear. C, I don't like the word. So... But I'm not going to knock you out yet, but I'm going to let you know, don't. And I think if Red had, in, in the way I see Red and in the way I was telling the story, if Red had persisted, and Aaron does get rough with him in the story, but yeah. if Red had persisted, Aaron would have decked him cold and that, you know, just knocked him right out, knocked him the hell out, as the phrase goes, and left. Because I don't have to put up with that. You're working for me or you're working with me. That's bull. Not happening. Did um, did Red's um, condition of being extremely inebriated uh, play into the flexibility that Alec uh, that Aaron showed? It's funny. You, you, the, the, the verbal faux pas there was my name. <laughs> Of course it was. Of course it was. <laughs> um, yeah, the fact that he's drunk, you know, and drunk doesn't make you do things that you don't feel or believe. It just removes the shackles. It right. just removes the, the guard. So yeah, he knows that thought is in there. He knows that word's in there. He's he's yeah. not surprised. And I'm gonna you know I'm gonna cut you a little bit of slack. But again, if you if you persist, mean and and in my head when Aaron when I was writing the scene, if Red had said it anyway, Aaron would have decked him, and that would have been it. It would have been over. Um, so, so let me push. Let me push this area, and then we'll go back to writing ethnicity. Yeah, because we only have a, <laughs> a little bit more time. Yeah. Should uh, should he confront the N word? Should Aaron confront yeah, the N word? Should someone use that because they, he always warns them, and they stop. Should there be that scene where then somebody does it? Let me let me put it this way. A, a part of the reason, like I said, the word never gets completely used in any of my stories is I, as the writer, don't like the word. 
And so I acknowledge that it exists by starting it or avoiding using it altogether. There, because I'm also of a mind that we grow with our work, we grow as writers, we grow as storytellers, the characters grow with their experiences. I won't say it will never happen. Uh, I haven't seen it in any of the stories I have planned. I'll put it that way. But absolutely, he has encountered people who, if I were a different kind of writer, would have used it fully. And I think also, you know, an, another thing that's in my mind, and this may or may not change with a particular story, uh, I don't think it's going to change in general, is I've always tried to write Blackjack so that it could be read by almost anyone, age-wise. Um, so there's not there's not a lot of... It, really, there's no, no four-letter words that you're going to see. I mean, you know, there's, there's possibly walk, you know, things like that. But you're not going to see some of the other colorful curse right. phrases in there. He, he's, a, he's a man, and, and he likes, in his case, he likes women. And so subsequently, there are probably liaisons that he's had. One of them was hinted at one of the comic books, but you don't see any sexual acts. Right. Um, you know, he loves people, so he's more respectful of, of, of certain women in his life. So he wouldn't be jumping in and out of the sack with them. That's, that's him. That's a part of his moray, and maybe that's a part of mine, you know, to some degree. I think, you know, Aaron is, in some ways, the hero I would love to have become were I that strong, that tall, and, and had that high tolerance for pain, you know, <laughs> which I don't have any of those things. But, you know, I think that, yeah, it's definitely there's some of me in him, most right. assuredly. Um, so, again, the future is the future. And as you know, there's some dialogue uh, on the West Coast about the character happening on one of the, the various size screens. Mm -hmm. So, you know, where that will go, I know what the dialogues have been between me and them, but where that will go, should it all come to fruition, is, is another interesting uh, yes. uh, episode we can have at some point. Yeah, I think that should be a separate episode because I have 42 questions. <laughs> about that. <laughs> I have two more uh, areas of this topic, if you're okay with it. I, I'm okay. I just said I'm just clock watching because I know we both have things we have to run and do today. One, okay, one, we both write in New York, uh, uh, at least sometimes, write about New York City or write about things happening in the world. Mm -hmm. I would propose for those who say you can't write outside your ethnicity that there's one way of looking at that is absurd because we cannot reflect the city like New York City without including the rich tapestry that is New York City. You know, in City of Woe, we see five or six or seven different maybe more, maybe 10 different ethnicities or New Yorker types represented. Most of which I am not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? I, I would right? think you could safely could say that, yeah. Right? I am not a store owner. I'm not uh, uh, an African, old African-American man looking for a lotto ticket and so on. I'm not an older widow and all that sort of stuff. But you have to pull from your experience, be clear-headed about are you representing these characters fairly and 
and do they fit in organically fit in your story? I think Joe's use of the N-word is organic, as Walter's is, you know, and, and maybe I'm wrong in trying to avoid that word. Uh, but as far as personalities and characters, you have to write the whole uh, uh, tapestry to to bring out something like New York City. Well, let Do me just agree? let me just compliment you absolutely on that, and also say, all one has to do is pick up certain books, comics, or watch certain TV shows before mm, 1965. And you will see the exact opposite. You know, there's a line in in a in a song that Quincy Jones wrote and produced the music for, but I think the the, the lyrics were were composed by a number of rappers. And there's a line where it says, "You never see a black man on the honeymooners." And I you know I can counter that by saying, "No, I did see a train porter once." You know, but in terms of the everyday average walking down the street, no. Uh, a lot of the books, the sitcoms. Even some friends. of the um, even if you ever see Friends, that big coffee place yep. they go to, yep. yeah, come on, yeah. But this is what that, I'm saying. This is not reflective of New York. This is the world. This is the world that existed through time, up until really not that long ago. Because I'm talking about within my lifetime. Mm -hmm. So I I think that one of the things, one of the dialogues that happened on a large scale is get real. Mm -hmm. You're in a you're in a diverse city. Use it. And I've, I've said this to major publishers. I've said this to uh, at, at meetings in certain comic book companies. You know, the reason people see this as white bread or milk toast or whatever is because even in your backgrounds, you don't have other cultures or other ethnicities. Yeah. And, and if you don't start there, at least, then you're always going to wear that banner. And if that's what you want, that's a whole other thing. But I think what you're saying is absolutely on point. You, you want to be genuine. And if you don't know, if you do live in a town that's predominantly white or Catholic or uh, 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 the, the background is Nordic or whatever it is, but you don't have any exposure to any of these other things, then, and you want to write about it, learn about it. Yeah. That's yeah. it, you know, and start doing it. Because as I said, the pushback from anybody, whether black or white or Asian or whatever, about not writing about my culture because you're not that. I'm sorry. You know, it's been done for hundreds of years by one culture in particular, and there was all kinds of hell that people, you know, either boldly talked about or whispered about behind closed doors. You know, my, my, my favorite experience within the black experience is, for years when I was growing up was when black folks would be talking, yeah, and I was talking to this guy, and, this, and then suddenly they, they're going to hit this word, and the white dude, and the voice would drop. And then they go back to talking loud again. And I'm saying, I'm sorry, what did you say? <laughs> because as far as I'm concerned, put it out there completely, clearly. Let's not keep hiding the dialogues. Because the guy was probably a white dude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, actually, and again, the, the thing of it is there are some of... No, not the speaker, the guy he was talking about. Right, And exactly. this white dude was probably a white dude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so the thing of it, the thing of it is, is that we, we are in a place, at least in my head, and, and obviously yours and a few others that are out there, we're in a place right now where we can't, we can't, we can't erase what's been done. 
But yeah. we can build a better world going forward by not doing it anymore. Right. Right. And that's that's what I'm about. Let us let us start to really tell the stories fully with all right. those colors. You know, with with the richness of all those colors so that we even find newer stories. Right. And my last my last point is about being organic. Hmm. Right? Um, there's a trailer out now of a Seth Rogen story. Uh, Seth Rogen movie. Mm-hmm. And the Secretary of State and his character, he's a journalist, but kind of sloppy, sweatpants-wearing guy. Right. Um, and they knew each other years ago. And there's a potential romance coming up, right? And one of his friends says, yeah, this is um, the Julia Roberts movie. But you know, you're you're Julia Roberts, yeah, right, <laughs> you know, right, right, and that's organic. That was an organic moment. But there's another part in the trailer where he falls down the stairs, and this is kind of a cocktail party where boys to men are performing. Right, that's how high scale this is. And he falls down the stairs uh, and and slams on his face and slides across the floor. And one of the boys and the men looks down and says, crack it down. Okay, funny line, but inorganic. I can never believe that boys and men would stop singing, make a comment about what was happening, or say crack it. It just doesn't come across that. There's nothing that I've ever experienced, and I'm not intimate with the boys and the men catalog and all that stuff. But it, it, you know, it, it doesn't come across. So there's, you know, Seth Rogen and his people taking a line that they, this would be funny if someone said, uh, um, crack it down. And then looking at who's there and say, oh, boys, we have boys, the men performing, have them say it, which is just, you know, uh, cheapens the punchline. Mm. Right. Yeah. I think you have to be in. My forget my apologies, Seth. I hope you don't get mad at me. Um, <laughs> and kick you out of his next film. <laughs> that's it. You're not allowed in the movie theater yet, best. Um, but being organic, you know, I want to go to Genius High. Uh, there's a character in Genius High called Ignatius Bob, and the name is uh, Allah Seth Rogan selected inorganically. It was a name on a tombstone in St. Raymond Cemetery. It was my favorite name growing up and I always want to never found a place that it fit and then as the story of uh, uh, Junius High was evolving I realized there was a character that was evolving and then that character was going to be named Ignatius Bob it just felt right and the, the evolvement developed a little further and I realized that Ignatius Bach, Bob looked exactly or very much like a former student from the where I teach, mm-hmm. uh, nicknamed Banjo Greg, oh, who walked around with a banjo. He was an, an African-American kid, um, and he just looked older than his years. You know, he looked like An old he soul. lived... You know, so much more. Not tired, not this or that, but he looked, he looked 34, mm. you know, when he was 17 or 18. And uh, his, it, it, uh, he, you know, I've, I follow him on social media and he's begun to work out, so he doesn't look like this at all anymore. 
you know, he's in yep. great shape now. But at that time, you know, uh, uh, he had that kind of settled body and that kind of stuff. And I realized that this is what Ignatius Bob looks like. Ignatius Bob is African-American. It was a discovery as I got to know this, the, the character, and that is organic. And then you do the research to make that part of the story real. Mm-hmm. You mentioned when we were, you know, uh, doing prep for this episode, you talked about, you know, just flipping characters. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Hey, we're going to have this character, but we're going to make him white, or we're going to make him black, or, you know, this male superhero, we're going to make it uh, um, a 17-year-old Latina, you know, or whatever. And you found that to be offensive and very inorganic. I, I find that... You know, I'm not saying that one should never do that, but I do find that it's more often than not, it feels like a gimmick when certain certain films and certain other creators have done that. It feels like we need to up the, the stakes here or we need to make this cool or we need to get draw attention. Maybe once in a while it's, you know, this is unbalanced. There's all these white people. We need to, to make this more diverse because I want it more diverse. And, and so we'll do that. But, you know, a lot of the times it feels like this is a flavor of, of this particular uh, project month. And so we're going to do that. And, and yeah, when, when it feels like that, it does not feel organic. Um, I know that uh, when they were talking about, uh, oh, just as I started to say his name, it went out of my head. Oh, I hate when that happens. James Bond. Yes. And they were going to uh, Idris Elba. There, thank you. Idris, I never forget your skills as an actor. I just sometimes a name slipped into the fog. But when when they were talking about Idris Elba being the new James Bond and I it bothered me. It's not because I think James Bond is some holy character that that should only be played by white dudes. It was that Idris Elba A is a magnificent actor and he could go far with a solid character, give him a character that he can actually own. In other words, let him establish that. Give him, make him 007 and, or 008 or make him something else that he can build that into a franchise. Not that, oh, he's the new guy that we're going to try in the Bond suit, which they'd done with a lot of other actors. So to me, it was more about, no, give him his own thing and let him roll with it. It's like okay. Michael B. Jordan being, you know... Um, uh, Apollo Creed's son, he is now building that, he has built that character in two films into his own character people aren't looking at him as Apollo they're looking at him as the son of right, then let me let me push you a little further um, I'm a big fan of Miles Morales as Spider-Man uh -huh. and I think the reason I am is because they built his origin and his uh, development on its own merits, from his own experience. Mm -hmm. They didn't just make him act and talk like Peter Parker with, but with dark brown skin. skin yeah, right? right. Yeah. And I think I think there's the difference. You know, um, that works because Miles is alive. Yeah. Sp Spider Gwen, I I chastised myself during the uh, Into the Spider Verse because when I heard that phrase, Spider Gwen, I was like, oh. Please. It's just inorganically switching it out. 
But then when I heard her origin, and I was like, wait, she's a character. She's, you know, it's it's a different universe. It's working well there. Uh, you know, it's a kind of a what if. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, I think a place where it fails and it could have worked was the girl's uh, girl version of um, Ghostbusters. I knew you were going there, yeah. Well, yeah. I just wish that even one of them was the daughter of some of the others, someone of the others, so that this is how the franchise you know, or the business Can continue. got handed in. You know? Well, look, the, look, com- the yeah, reboot sorry. was too easy. <clears throat> yeah. You know? And look at, look at the reboot of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I think it was very well handled. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and it was it was it was saying we're going to tell you not only are, are these not the originals which you've grown to know and love or, or right. were introduced to briefly, but because of this whole time space continuum thing, <clears throat> they're on an, a whole new plane, yeah. so they're going to develop as their own, uh, Kirk and Spock and Silver and so on. I, I really love that they worked that problem. You know that the Trek fans were going to have a hard time, and they said, "You know what? How can you know they're sci-fi fans? How can we use their love of sci-fi to bring them in in a way that they'll be satisfied with?" And I think they, it was spectacularly well done. And you know, I, if you look at Captain Marvel, the movie that just came out, mm-hmm, you know, you, you yeah. see a, a quote-unquote younger Nick Fury. Um, and I I grew up with Nick Fury from the you know Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos into Shield into, mm-hmm. you know, the other things, as this white guy with the, the, the white sideburns and the cigar. And, yep. okay, and then... That's si- the Steranko version. <laughs> right. Well, actually, in actually you know, actually, I have to say, if you read some of the old Howlers, he, he had a stogie. He had, was well, always had a stogie, but he had the, um, like, the 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock shadow. Exactly, but yeah. But he did have those cool sideburns with yeah. Steranko. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the whole, the whole thing, again, is when they flipped him into uh, a black character, and they did that in the comics, and then they did... You know, part of me went, okay, uh, when did that happen and why? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really wanted to understand, is this an alternate universe or what? I wasn't, well, I wasn't offended that he was black, but it was like, well, why? Uh, it was the ultimates, I think, was that universe was created to heavily market toward, they become like storyboards for Hollywood. Right. Because Tony Stark, if you look at those early ultimates, he looks like Tom Cruise. You know, right? And, yeah, and, I hadn't thought and about Nick that. Fury looks like Samuel L. Jackson and all that sort of stuff. I didn't follow Ultimates at that time when I, you know, I kind of caught up on it later on. But this is a case where, when I heard that Samuel L. Jackson was going to be Nick Fury, it clicked for me immediately because of the power of Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> You know, the actor. His attitude yeah. Yeah. is so ripe for Nick Fury that it it bound right over the you know the change of ethnicity. Well, certainly, certainly, I I could embrace him quicker than I could David Hasselhoff. No <laughs> offense, David, but that, you know, yeah, I'm that sorry. Was offensive. That was offensive. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sorry, Dave. You know, you were cool in Baywatch. It's all good. Knight Rider. You had a good run Very on that. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm but sorry. It just didn't work. It didn't work. Yeah, it did. One last thing that worked when they did the female versions of Ocean's Eleven, they had one tether. Sandra Bullock's character was uh, uh, Clooney's brother. 
or sister. Oh, jeez. I was going to say, hey, that is flipping it. <laughs> she, she, she was his, uh, his sister, and that was all you needed, you know? That was, the, yeah, that was that, the tether. I was so amazed that they were able to do that on just that little scale, that little touch. But, but it says that somebody was paying it. attention. And and sometimes that's really all you need. It's like you know, like you were saying, like the N word, throwing you out of a, a Lansdale story sometimes because eh, you know, when someone pays attention, and I so love Lansdale. right? When someone pays attention to those little speed bumps or potholes, it gets taken care of. You know, yeah. if the suits don't screw it up, or if you know something else doesn't happen, they spot it. They go, hey, we got we got to deal with this, or other it's going to trip people up when we get to this point. And they deal with it. And I think that that's a great thing. And, and again, wrapping up the theme of this episode, you know, for those of you who, who remembered what it was, because we, we can't talk. Um, the reality here is, you know, once again, I, I will just quote myself and say, when you push back on that so broadly, when you push back and say that no one who isn't X should ever write X, I think... Ultimately, you, you, you slam the door on the fingers of all of us who have managed to finally get out of the era where all we were called on to do was to write X. Yeah. We well, couldn't even we, get in if, the door if there was no X in the story, period. If we go with that rule, there's no DC Comics, there's no Marvel Comics, there's no Star Wars, there's no sci-fi. There, you know, there's, no, there's, there's no Get Out. Because yeah, there were yeah, white people in that. <laughs> There's also no chance for the for the culture as a whole to advance. Yeah. Quite the opposite of what that statement would suggest. We need to do this. And the only thing is we need to do it well. That's absolutely it. Do your homework. What you don't know, admit it and find out. You know, and, and then execute and it to the respect. best of your ability. You yeah. have to maintain respect. Absolutely, absolutely. Whatever That's it is. That's how you tell the damn story, Alex. One more time. <laughs> <laughs> so, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And, you know, we got a comment section here. You know, you can definitely throw down your comments, your thoughts about what we've said, good or bad. Uh, we're willing to listen or read. And respond. We know where you live. No, I mean, <laughs> yes, just no. Really, no, we would really love to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. So. And we got a couple of things coming up over the next few episodes that will remind you of that. So, That's take right. care until the next time, Chris. As always, great talking with you. Always great talking with you. Brother. Okay, buddy. Take care. Peace, all.